Hello, my name is Rahul Bal, Associate Editor at Open Heart BMJ. Today I'm talking to Zoe Harkham, who's a postgraduate researcher at the University of the West of Scotland and an author of numerous books on diet and obesity. She is also the lead author of an interesting paper that we are publishing. This is about the evidence for guidelines on dietary fat intake. Thank you for joining me, Zoe. Tell me, what led you to do this study and what did you do in it? Morning, Raoul. Um, the impetus behind the study was essentially that we've had the same dietary guidelines now since 1977 in the US and 1983 in the UK. They are reviewed every five years in the US, and it is in fact a dietary guideline year this year. They've been reviewed every five years since 1980. There's no similar process for re-review in the UK, but essentially two primary dietary fat goals have remained in situation since 1977, and that's to have no more than 30% of total energy in the form of fat and no more than 10% of total energy in the form of saturated fat. And the RCT evidence base for their introduction at the time has never been examined until now. I see. So I understand that the paper that we are looking at now was to actually examine that evidence base. It was indeed. It was to use systematic review and meta-analysis of the RCTs available to the U.S. Dietary Committee in 1977 and then the U.K. Committee in 1983. There were five studies with six interventions. One study, the Rose 1965 study, had two arms to it, and those were available to the American Guideline Committee. And then an additional study published, the Woodhill 1978, was available to the U.K. Committee in 1983. I see. So what did you find when you looked at these studies? There are many interesting findings. One of the first findings were that fewer than 2,500 males participated in these six dietary trials um, with the five. Uh, five of these were secondary prevention studies. Only one included healthy subjects, but also included secondary participants. So essentially, we had not studied any women. We had not studied um, in any comprehensive way healthy people um, and yet we actually introduced the guidelines on the back of those very, very small um, men studied for almost 300 million people at the time they were introduced. A second interesting finding was that no RCT had actually tested either of the dietary recommendations before their introduction. So there wasn't one RCT that had said, okay, let's test the 30% total fat and or the 10% saturated fat um, and then see if this would actually be a wise uh, dietary guideline to introduce. The Woodhill 1978 study did test 10% saturated fat. It didn't test simultaneously the total fat, but of course that came after the American dietary guidelines had already been introduced, and by and large the UK seemed to adopt the exact same guidelines as the American uh, Dietary Committee. In terms of the meta-analysis, uh, very interestingly, there were precisely the same number of deaths from all-cause mortality in both the intervention and control groups. The risk ratio from meta-analysis was 0 0.996, um, with the confidence interval firmly across uh, the one line, so no significance there. And in terms of coronary heart disease deaths, the uh, risk ratio was 0 0.989, again firmly across the 1.0 line for risk ratio indicating non-significant findings. A final interesting finding was that serum cholesterol levels did decrease in both the control and intervention groups, 
they decreased more in the intervention groups, but this did not result in significant differences between the intervention and the control groups in either coronary heart disease or all-cause mortality. So it did bring into question as well the role that cholesterol is assumed to play in the whole diet-heart hypothesis. Indeed. So it it sounds like, based on the randomized control trial evidence, there was a very limited amount of evidence to say that these guidelines should have been introduced. On the basis of that, what are the implications of that? Essentially, um, to the team that worked on this, um, there's one overriding conclusion, which was that the RCT evidence did not support the introduction of dietary fat guidelines, and they therefore need revisiting. Now, there's obviously an obvious next question to ask, which we have looked at, which is, okay, they weren't um, supported at the time. Have they been uh, supported in retrospect? And the answer to that is also no, as found in the Hooper uh, meta-analysis and systematic review that looked at these and similarly found that, that you know there was not the evidence to say that we should have introduced either of those dietary guidelines. So, quite frankly, they need revisiting. And so that current meta-analysis is also based on randomized control trials, I imagine? Yes, it was, yes. And, and we've done our own, which we're working on at the moment, which looks at the randomized control trials since the 1983 UK guidelines. And there were very few. I mean, you could literally name them. There's the DART 1989 Burr um, study, which looked at fat, fish, and fiber advice. You've got the Minnesota Coronary Survey, um, which looked at men and women, and was also very interested in being the first primary study. And then you've got the STARS um, study with Watts, these only go up to 1992 because, of course, then pharmacology intervened and became standard treatment, particularly for secondary studies, but generally also um, made its way into primary care. And thus, there were no uh, dietary, pure dietary interventions beyond 1992. You're then into the complexities of dietary interventions and pharmacology, and the opportunity to isolate impact of diet was then subsequently lost. So it's back 20 years um, for the last dietary study that we need to look at. And we've looked at that, um, as I said, and the relative risk for all-cause mortality, um, including all the 11 studies that would take us up to present day, was 0.978, again, spanning the 1.0 risk ratio, non-significant. And similarly, for deaths from coronary heart disease, risk ratio 0.933, non-significant. What about evidence from other areas? Are there any other types of studies that we could use to draw a connection between fat and heart disease? Yes, the other um, obvious arm of investigation when we've got RCTs and we've got epidemiological evidence, cohort studies, observational studies, called uh, many different things. Um, again, at the time of the dietary guidelines being introduced, this is the primary subject of my PhD study, to look at the evidence that was available at the time they were introduced and the seminal epidemiological study uh, is a very well-known one, the Ansel Keys Seven Countries Study, and it's primarily the only one that would have been available to the dietary committees at the time. Interestingly, and we reference this in our BMJ Open paper, is that this was not referenced by the American Dietary Committee when they published their findings in 1977. It was referenced in the 1983 UK document, um, but anecdotally, You'll find a lot of people who are challenging current dietary advice um, globally in the nutritional field, and they strongly hold that it was the seven-country study that was responsible for the introduction of the dietary guidelines. Um, in terms of tracing what was actually 
formally referenced by the dietary committees. Uh, the evidence for that is not compelling. I see. So on what basis did those committees then that didn't reference that evidence decide that the guidelines should have been introduced at the time? <laughs> that is the million-dollar question. That is the one that I would absolutely love to know because from all the research that I've done, the evidence just simply isn't there. Um, if you look at uh, other anecdotal evidence, um, particularly thinking of Nina Teachold's recent book, A Big Fat Surprise, there is um, evidence that this was political. Um, that book particularly paints a picture of Senator George McGovern having lost the presidential election to Richard Nixon and having been determined to make an impact in another way. Um, arguably, the introduction of the dietary guidelines has had a far more lasting impact on the US, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, and every other country that has moved to these dietary guidelines. And there is an interesting exchange that we refer to in our paper where one of the uh, people presenting, one of the doctors, Dr. Robert Olson, presenting to the dietary committee said, um, you know, I pleaded in my report and I will plead again orally here for more research on the problem before we make announcements to the American public, um, to which McGovern replied, senators don't have the luxury that the research scientist does of waiting until every last shred of evidence is in. Well, there was a great deal of evidence, but it just doesn't appear to have been taken into account. Indeed, it's not an unusual sort of exchange you expect to happen between sort of politicians and researchers as well. I think sometimes there's often a feeling that policy can't wait around for the absolute evidence. But then I see on the basis of what you're saying that actually the evidence that was there wasn't actually referenced in the reports either. Now, so we've had these guidelines for a long time, and it's been very much the focus of a lot of um, public health intervention in order to reduce coronary artery disease. Is it possible then that the focus on fat as the main culprit has distracted us from other possible risks? Yes, I, I firmly believe that. The most direct implication of setting strict dietary fat guidelines is that dietary carbohydrate must increase. And the guidelines actually specified this. So the US guidelines at the time of saying there should be no more than 30% of calories in the form of fat specified that carbohydrate consumption should be increased to account for 55 to 60% of calorie intake. And the UK guidelines noted that the reduction in fat needed to be made up somehow, and it should be made up with carbohydrate. And if you're familiar with um, macronutrients and are aware that protein is in everything other than sucrose and oils, protein tends to be fairly constant in the diet, whether you're going for carb proteins such as beans and pulses and grains, or whether you're going for fat proteins which are more the meat, fish, eggs, dairy, animal foods. So protein tends to be fairly constant. So instructions to tell people to eat less fat are concomitantly instructions to tell people to eat more carbohydrate. And indeed, these were reinforced in the document. So we have dramatically increased our carbohydrate intake since the introduction of these guidelines. And of course, we have seen um, in the UK, for example, before the guidelines were introduced, UK obesity rates recorded by the World Health Organization were 2.7% for men and the same figure for women. By the end of the last century, that was 25.8% for women, 22.6% for men. So in the UK, almost a tenfold increase in obesity in the three decades around the time of the change in dietary advice away from fat and towards carbohydrate. Now, that could be entirely coincidental, um, but it is an association that needs exploration. And, of course, the increase in diabetes type 2 
um, held by a number of people. There have been a number of interesting papers published recently looking at the impact of carbohydrate on diabetes type 2. Um, and generally, um, it's back to the question of what needs to happen as a result of this. We need to revisit the guidelines to see what has happened since their introduction and to see if that's association or causation or even just worth further exploration. So given that these fat dietary guidelines are now in question, I mean, many people are worried about heart disease and go to their doctors. They want advice about how to reduce their risk of this illness. If that guidance needs to be revisited, then what can we then tell our patients? The three major factors associated with heart disease, and probably doctors don't want to say this to patients, but the blunt reality is that patients can do nothing about, and they are, of course, genetics, age, and gender. Um, if a male with a family history of heart disease um, is reaching a certain age, they are infinitely more at risk of heart disease than a young female with no um, similar family genetics. So I think one thing that would be useful is to actually recognize more what we can do things about and, and those things that we can't. The number one factor within your patient's control, um, as I'm sure you tell them, is smoking. Um, mm. And the absolute crystal clear message there is don't. Um, not just for heart disease, but for lung cancer, um, cancer generally, and just general health, breathing, well-being, and so on. My personal advice to people who ask about heart disease when uh, they realize that I don't worry about dietary fat um, is that I would be advising people as far as possible to eat natural, not processed foods, to eat the foods that we have actually evolved to eat, to walk regularly if people have exercise that they particularly enjoy um, then that's great, but you know we should all be walking regularly and walking two places rather than taking the car. Um, and then there are other things that we perhaps don't talk about enough because we have become so focused on things like dietary fat and issuing guidelines, um, things like having purpose in life, loving and be loved, do something you love for a living. You know the whole stress and well-being of a, a human aspect is being overlooked because we are placing, in my view, far too much emphasis on things like saturated fat um, with some ignorance. That's probably the only word that I can use in terms of what saturated fat actually is and, and how it can impact humans anyway. If you look on the American and UK government lists of saturated fat, they list things like crisps, confectionery, ice cream, pastries, um, pasties, all kinds of things like that, which to me are processed foods condemn them for being processed foods, they're then primarily carbohydrates, and in almost all circumstances, they actually have more unsaturated fat than saturated fat. Not that one is better or worse than the other, because they're actually all found in the same foods. If you find one, you find the other. You know, they are not separated by nature. Um, and just generally, nutritional ignorance has not helped in the messages that we've been giving our populations. Indeed, that's very interesting, some very sensible-sounding advice that we could probably use in the future. Thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been a very um, interesting discussion, and I hope people have a look at the paper and get involved in the discussion around this, because it's definitely going to be something that people will want to know more about in the future and something where there's going to be a lot more work done. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. Thank you.